Good morning. Welcome to Citizens Church. My name is Luke. I'm obviously not Rob. Um, you can tell probably because of the hair, first of all. The goal is that you can't tell because of the teaching. That's the goal today. Um, but yeah, my name is Luke. I'm a member here at Citizens Church. My wife and I got a chance to be a part of Citizens when it was first meeting in Rob and Danielle's uh, living room, and that was awesome, and then got to be a part of the, the first few members here. And so we've gotten to see kind of up to now, which has been amazing. God has, has really shown his grace on this place. Uh, if, if you're visiting today, I want to welcome you especially. We're, we're happy you're here. Um, if you're a little dissatisfied with the teaching, just know I'm not the regular guy, okay? No, I'm joking. I'm joking. Actually, one of the things I love about Pastor Rob is his desire for there not to be a regular guy, um, which is pretty cool. If you stick around here long enough, it's pretty cool to see a lead pastor that doesn't want it to be all about the lead pastor. So thank you for that. That's pretty awesome. This is normally the part where Pastor Rob would give a disclaimer about how awkward church plants are. Um, but I just want to say, too, I want to go on the record. Like, I like the awkwardness. We are imperfect people, and we are awkward people. And it is really cool to just see how that all works out on Sundays as we all try to make it happen. So I just want to go on record. I like the awkward church plant stuff. Um, and then last thing, if, if you are visiting here or you haven't gotten to know us very well, stick around afterwards. Obviously, we're all sitting at tables, as you can see. That's intentional. We have some food back there. We love to just hang out afterwards and get to know each other, eat, and, and fellowship together. So please stick around and feel free to ask me what I meant by a certain point or ask Pastor Rob any questions, get to know Ben or anyone else. Uh, we would love to get to know you. Um, but let's jump in. A little bit. We've been in a series on the Gospel of Mark, and that's kind of what we do here. We just pick a book and we plow right through it. And so we are plowing through the book of Mark right now. We're in Mark chapter 7. And just as a little recap, we've said that the tagline for this book, like if you were going to do a, a movie on the Gospel of Mark, first of all, it'd probably be pretty cheesy because all Christian movies are very cheesy. But the tagline would be probably God is restoring his wayward people. That is the book of Mark. We've said it a million times, and if you could come away with one thing, our hope is that you would know that God is restoring his wayward people. And what we've seen in the first seven chapters of Mark, to be honest with you, is just a lot of miracles, a lot of miracles. We see Jesus' baptism. We see him teach on the kingdom. We see him teach a few other things, but majoritively it has been miracle after miracle after miracle. And I don't know about you, sometimes when I get to the 30th miracle that Jesus does, it kind of loses its luster. <laughs> Like, I know it's amazing, but I'm like, what am I going to get out of this one, right? Like another miracle. And that was kind of my thought when Pastor Rob gave me this assignment. But I will say, I think this, this passage is, is proof that the word never returns void. And the deeper that we dig, the more we can get out of it. And so what's happening in all these miracles? Why? Why is these, are these emphasized by not only Mark, but the rest of the gospel writers, especially the synoptic gospels? Well, I think what you could say is that Jesus, in coming to earth, is inaugurating a kingdom. Jesus, in John chapter 12, verse 32, says that when he is lifted up, he's going to draw all men to himself. When I first read that verse, I think, oh, when he's ascended at the right hand of the Father, then he'll draw all men to himself. No, no, no. Jesus is talking about when he's lifted up on the cross physically, with his crown of thorns, he is going to inaugurate the kingdom of God on this earth. And it's paradoxical and it's crazy. And so, so as he's walking this earth, 
doing miracles and teaching, we could say that he's actually demonstrating what it is to walk as a citizen of that kingdom. And so what we get to do is we get to look back at the king. How did the king walk in his kingdom? And we get to pull things out and say, what does it look like for me as a citizen of this kingdom to walk in this kingdom? And we've seen primarily in these miracles that it looks like God restoring his wayward people. If you were going to ask me, how does the kingdom of God advance on this earth? I would tell you it's through the restoration of his people. It's through the restoration of his people. We've seen it on a macro scale, or we're going to see it on a macro scale, a large scale when it comes to the cross. It's why he came to die. He wants to offer restoration to all people. But on a small scale, many small scales, micro scales, we see it in these stories, these miracles, where he meets an individual and he restores them in some way, shape, or form. And those are foreshadows. They're foretastes of what is to come through that large restoration of the cross and through his return as we wait for him. And so we're going to dive in to one of those foreshadows today. And we're going to pull out some characteristics of Christ and his rule as kingship. What does it look like to sit under the king? And if you're not a Christ following here, I want to I want to invite you, first of all, thank you for being here. Second of all, this is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to look and see what is it like to follow the king? What, is it, what does it look like to be a citizen of the kingdom? And more importantly, you get a glimpse of the king himself, hopefully, as we look at this passage. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, Thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you for your presence in worship. Thank you for your presence here now. Holy Spirit, I I ask that you would give me clarity, uh, that you would illuminate your words, the words that you want us to hear this morning. Lord, I pray for other churches in this city. Lord, I I think of Scarlet City Church or uh, Linworth Baptist Church or Jersey Baptist or uh, just other like-minded gospel-centered churches in this city, Lord, that when your word is proclaimed this morning, that it would not return void. We trust that, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, on December 7th, 1941, there was a man named George Elliott, and George Elliott was a young naval officer. He was stationed on the island of Oahu, and it was the largest naval base uh, at the time probably in the world, definitely the largest in uh, the United States. And he was a radar officer, so he was aware of how to run the radar systems. It's what he did. And there was a new state-of-the-art radar system uh, installed on the island of Oahu. This thing was everything that anyone had at the time when it came to radar. And George Eliot was not, uh, he knew how to run it. He knew how to run it well. And he normally would run the radar from uh, 4 a.m. to 7 a.m. That was his shift. Well, at 6.45 a.m. on December 7th, 1941, George noticed a large cluster, a large cluster of blips to the west, moving east at a rapid, rapid pace. And and George Eliot had done this before. He knew what a flock of birds was, and he knew what a prop plane was on another island, and he knew what weather systems looked like on radar, and he knew that this was not that. He was intimately aware of his surroundings and of of his job, and he knew that these blips were not any of those. So at 7.20 a.m., when he should have been at breakfast, instead he was phoning the mainland, running it up the chain of command, a naval information center, saying, hey, there is a large 
group of blips heading our way from the west. They assured him there's no chance this could be an attack. It's probably just a group of B-17 bombers flying in from San Francisco, American planes. George, again, having intimate knowledge of the situation and the radar system, knew there's no way that could be the case. But George Elliott did not have the authority to act on the information he had. And so by 7.55 a.m., only a half hour later, the United States was plunged into World War II. The Japanese had attacked Pearl Harbor, and it was a complete surprise. Like I said, the largest military in the world, the largest naval base in the world, had gotten completely caught off guard by a Japanese attack. The U.S. military was the ultimate authority in the world and had no intimate knowledge of the situation. What followed was, depending on estimates, the largest loss of life on American soil in U.S. history. And although this is a pretty dramatic example, I do think it's a reality that a lot of us live in, in this world. Namely, that those in authority often fail us because they don't have intimate knowledge of our problems or they don't have intimate knowledge of the situation that we're in. It often looks like bureaucracy. I don't know if anyone's ever felt this tension with a boss or corporate or uh, even with the government. I read a Facebook post this week. It was about politics. Imagine that, Facebook. Um, it was about politics. And it was, a, it was a quote from a politician. And I didn't even read the quote. But the, the, the comment the guy made was a laugh. And then he said, oh, if you could just sit at my desk for one week. And that's like the tension we feel sometimes, right? That those in authority don't often know our plight. They don't know our brokenness. They don't know what we deal with. Or on the flip side, the people with intimate knowledge of our situation or of a situation don't often have the authority to act on it. In, in George Eliot's case, you might know someone where you would say, I, I know what they're going through, but I just, I just don't know how to fix it. Or I know what they need, but I can't give that to them right now. And how often do the decisions of those in authority completely undersatisfy us? And I'm not just talking about government. That's, that's a good example because it is a large authority and it is far off. But it's, this is not a message about government specifically. Think about the justice system. How often do verdicts in the justice system just completely undersatisfy so many people? Think about policies and programs, maybe at your work, maybe in your family. Maybe there's a decision from someone in your family that just doesn't take into account at all what, what you are going through. Well, what I want to put before you today is this idea that Jesus not only has the ultimate authority, not only is he ultimate above all of those authorities, but he is a better authority. And he's a better authority because he's intimate with his creation. So he is king over all, but yet he is intimate with his creation. And he demonstrates that in our passage today in one of these foreshadowings, these foretastes of the ultimate restoration that we will, uh, achieve, that we will experience. He demonstrates that today. And so you can see on your notes, we have a few different points, right? Our king is authoritative <laughs> over his creation. Our king is intimate with his creation. And because of this, the so what here is that we can walk in hope. We can walk in hope. So let's get into our passage. You're like, that's just the introduction. Yes, it is. I haven't gotten to do this in about a year and a half. And so 
I got a lot pent up to say, guys. We might be here a while. <clears throat> the first draft was like 55 minutes, and I had to cut about 25 minutes out. So we'll see how it goes. In uh, Mark chapter 7, 31, we get some context. It says, again, after leaving the region of Tyre, he went by the way of Sidon to the Sea of Galilee through the region of the Decapolis. So what we see here is that Jesus is coming back from the regions of Tyre and Sidon. These are pagan cities. They're far north of the region of Galilee. And, and he's coming back to the Decapolis. Decapolis is a Roman word. This is, this is not a word that the Jews would have used. They would have said Galilee. But this is John Mark speaking. And John Mark grew up in Roman captivity. And many believe that John Mark is actually writing to Romans in the 50s or 60s AD. And so he, he's speaking to them using words they would know. They would have known this region as the Decapolis. And so Jesus is coming back from pagan cities to the region of Galilee where he started his ministry. And just a quick point on the context here. It's, it's just amazing that God speaks uniquely to our context. The fact that Mark is using words that the Romans understand to make his point is, is pretty cool. So, so let's get into the, the circumstances of the miracle, which is going to be the next couple of verses. It says in verse 32, they brought him a deaf man who had, been, who had difficulty speaking and begged Jesus to lay his hands on him. So he took him away from the crowd in private. After putting his fingers in the man's ears and spitting, he touched his tongue. And I know you're like, how are you going to preach that? But we're going to get there. Just wait. Uh, then we're going to see the miracle itself in verse 34. This is Jesus here. It's looking up to heaven, he, Jesus, sighed deeply and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. Immediately his ears were opened and his tongue was loosened. He began to speak clearly. This is where I want to camp out first when we look at the authority of our king. In verses 34 and 35, authority has been a theme for Mark. Like we said, the big tagline is God restoring his wayward people. There's a lot of sub taglines and one of them is going to be the authority of our king. That is a big theme for Mark. And we see it here because Mark chooses not to translate this Aramaic word, Ephatha. My air makes pretty good if I do say so myself. <laughs> Ephatha. It's an imperative. It's a verb. It's a command. It's a, it's a word of authority. The type of word you would say, there's not even a question of whether or not it would be done. There's an expectation when you say this word that it will be done. He even goes as far as to translate it, be opened. Not will you be opened or can you be opened, but be opened. This is a word of authority. And you'll notice... How does the man's body respond to this word of authority? Immediately. Immediately the man's body responds. And, and the point you can take here is that when God speaks, his creation responds. When God created, he did so by speaking. And if you remember at the end of the Gospel of John, when Jesus and, and the, the disciples close to him are, are uh, coming out of the Garden of Gethsemane and, and the Romans are coming to arrest him, there's a legion of Roman soldiers and, and, and with word they fall over by Jesus' words. When God speaks, his creation responds. That's the authority that our king has. And like I said, it's been an emphasis for Mark. The Jews at the time here, if they were reading this, would have thought that this is the type of authority that only God could have. And Mark, by recording the fact that Jesus is looking to heaven where the Jews knew their authority was, where people, even the Romans, even the pagans knew that authority was with the gods in heaven. 
They may have been different gods, but they thought authority was in heaven. And yet Jesus is here looking to heaven, but then he's the one who speaks. So he's connecting himself with heaven, but yet he's the one who speaks with authority. In perfect union with his father, he exercises his authority. Let's just review where Mark's been with this idea of authority. If you don't believe me yet that Jesus has authority. In chapter 1, we saw Mark talk about Jesus' authority over the Torah in verses 21 and 22. And then he uh, casts out some unclean spirits and demons in verses 24. In verse 30 of chapter 1, he shows authority over sickness. In verse 40, you see authority over leprosy. And so he's showing authority over cleanliness, which was a big deal for the Jews. In chapter 2, he shows authority over the body and its functions, and then over fasting, and then later over the Sabbath. In chapter 3, he teaches on the kingdom and the nature of the kingdom. And so he's showing authority over the very nature of the kingdom for which he is king. And in chapter 4, he shows authority over the storm, the chaos of the water. Perhaps what would have been the scariest place for the ancient Near Eastern people would have been the middle of the sea. And yet Jesus shows authority over that place. And then not only the external storms, but internal storms, as Pastor Rob pointed out when he, when he uh, rids the demoniac of the demons that were possessing him. Authority over the storms internal. And then female uncleanliness. And then even death. In chapter 6, we see again, he has authority over nature. He has authority over physical satisfaction. And we come to chapter 7, where we see he has authority over tradition and commandments. Ben preached on his authority over the inward heart, the inner nature of our sin. Last week, Pastor Rob preached on his authority over the Gentile woman. He has authority over the Gentiles in their faith, not just the Jews. And we come to chapter 7 at the end here. The first time that Mark is going to show us that our king has authority over our senses over our senses. He has yet to heal someone's sense in the book of Mark until now. And we're going to see in the next chapter, he's going to heal someone's sight, but today a deaf and mute man. And so our King holds authority over all creation. And Mark writing to Romans realizes the claim he's making. Caesar can't heal people and Caesar can't raise the dead and Caesar can't teach on the nature of the kingdom of God. Caesar can't heal your senses. Caesar can't make you clean. Mark is making a point here that our king is the ultimate authority. Jesus himself knew this in chapter 28 of, of Matthew. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And so get this, Jesus has the power to restore us primarily because he has authority over us. <laughs> But not only authority over his creation, and this is, this is the, the turning point of the message, because this is different than anything any other authority can offer us. He's not only authoritative over us, but he is intimate with us. There's nothing in this world that has the authority he does, but yet the intimacy with that which he has authority over. And when I say intimacy, what I'm talking about is a closeness or a, a familiarity an awareness, an understanding of another person or another thing. And not just one of those things. Those words by themselves don't fully grasp what intimacy is. There's a depth there, a relational depth to that word intimacy. 
the closest thing we have is marriage. It's the closest thing we have for, for this, this grasping what it feels like to be intimate. And what we see is that Christ's relation to us is actually, the metaphor is used as marriage. So that's what we're getting at when we're talking about intimacy. We're going to look at three aspects of our king's intimacy with his creation. What does it look like for him to be intimate with us? In Mark chapter 7, verse 32 and 33, back to the circumstances of the miracle. It says, They brought to him a deaf man who had difficulty speaking. They begged Jesus to lay his hands on him. So he took him away from the crowd in private. After putting his fingers in the man's ears and spitting, he touched his tongue. First thing I want us to see here is that Jesus sees his people. He is intimate in that he sees his people. In verse 33, it says, So he took him away from the crowd in private. The scene here is very similar to Mark chapter 5, where the woman who is unclean, the woman who has been bleeding for years and years and years, is trying to work her way through the crowd, through the hustle and bustle around Jesus, just to touch his robe. In both, in both scenes, we see a crowd surrounding Jesus. We see a singled out person who's been marred by the brokenness of the world, by, marred by sin. And in both scenarios, Jesus restores that person from the effects of that brokenness. And what's fascinating here is that Jesus is actually on his way to make a way for the restoration of the crowd. But yet, in this moment, he's decided to, to bring restoration to an individual. And, and that is the mode by which he is still working today through his church. He is bringing restoration to the world through restoring individuals into his church. And he restores individuals into his church because he can see individuals. He can restore you because he can see you. Our faith is not individual. Our faith plays itself out in a community. But Jesus sees us as individuals. I remember when I was seven years old-ish, seven to ten. I'm a golfer. I don't know if you can tell. I played golf last, yesterday, so I might have some raccoon eyes for my sunglasses. But I'm a golfer, and my family are golfers. And so uh, as a kid, as a golfer, I mean, how could you not love Tiger Woods? I know everyone's like, please don't, don't compare Tiger to Jesus. <laughs> it's, it's not going to be that, okay? Just, just hear me out. Hear me out. At the time, we didn't know about his moral failures, okay? So slow down. Anyways, Tiger Woods was my guy, all right? I mean, eight-year-old golfer. He had the swag. He had the outfit. He had the confidence. He had the game. He had the focus. He was everything I wanted to be as a golfer. And I remember my dad brought me down to the, we're from Toledo, and my dad brought me down to the Mirafield Golf Tournament here in uh, Columbus. And... It was awesome. It was like my chance to see Tiger. And so we, we camped out because, man, the, the crowds, I don't know if you follow golf, but the crowds that would follow Tiger Woods on the golf course are, are unbelievable. So you have to camp out just to get a glimpse of Tiger Woods. And, if you, again, if you don't play golf, a lot of times you have the green, you finish your putt, you finish your, your stuff, and then you have to walk to the next tee box. And oftentimes that's when you get closest to the players because there's this roped-off area, maybe the size of this aisle way. And there's people on either side, and the players walk through it. And oftentimes, they're just head down because they're focused. They're ready for the next hole. So we camped out off of one of the later greens. We waited all day. And I was right where Wes is sitting. And Tiger was here where I am at, right? And he's coming towards me off the green. And my dad said, hey, I bet you if you call him Mr. Woods, he might respond to you. Because normally, people would go, Tiger, you know, yeah, yeah, get him, go get him. Like, it's a whole thing. 
bunch of men acting like boys <laughs> is really what it is. Um, so I did. So my dad put me up on his shoulders, and Tiger was you know, head down, focused, and I was this far away from him. And I said, good luck, Mr. Woods. And Tiger, like, he, my dad was right. It clicked. Something clicked. He looked straight up at me. He smiled. He pointed at me, and he said, thanks, buddy. And whew, I, like, whew, I'm an adult man, and it still like, gets me fired up. <laughs> Tiger, I mean, that was it, man. That was it. He had seen me in the crowd. He had seen me. And he looked at me. How much more joy do we have knowing that our king sees us in the crowd? Our king is intimate in that he sees each of us as though we were pulled aside from the crowd. The second point about his intimacy is that Jesus responds when his people come to him. And Pastor Rob actually made a very similar point to this last week. And I'm just going to make it again because if the text makes the point, we're just going to keep saying it. All right. In verse 32, it says that the people begged him. The tone here is not calm. The tone is hectic. It's desperate. Could you imagine in, in Mark chapter one, verse 28, it says that his fame was spreading through all of Galilee. So people knew about Jesus. They knew about his healing power. Could you imagine hearing that he had, he had dipped out, that he had left and went to the pagan cities? Like imagine this deaf man, like he didn't hear it, obviously, but he probably knew about Jesus's fame. And then all of a sudden to hear that he had gone to the pagan cities and yet he was back. It had to be such a scene of the crowd around him. And they begged him to lay hands on him. And how often in our own lives is that similar, where we are frantically running around, just hoping to get a glimpse of this king, hoping to get a glimpse of his power, his restoration, and then we just feel like he's left, like he's gone away, he's not there. And then all of a sudden we're like, can he come back, can he come back? And we bring something to him. We bring something to him in our desperation, and the question is, what happens? Well, I don't know. What, what do you think happens? Is it, is it like an earthly authority where sometimes you're brushed off? Hey, come back when you've got it together. Hey, come back when you can formulate a thought. Come back when you know what to pray for. Come back when you're not going to be so desperate or frantic. No, no, no. Jesus responds in this chaos. He responds. In verse 33, we see the word so, and it's so important because it's a conjunction and it means for this reason, because of. So there's, there's a turning point here that because they came to him, Jesus responded. So he took him away in private. Their coming to him causes Jesus to respond. And I know, slow down everyone in the room, right? No, God comes to us. God comes to us. He does. In salvation, yes, God comes to us. There is no us going to God. It is all God to us. And theologically, that is how things work. But in our experience, as we are sanctified, as we are walking day to day with Christ, it looks often like us coming to him, being willing to bring something to him. And so the question for us today is, what are we not coming to Jesus with? And why? Is it something too big? Something you think he doesn't maybe have authority over? Or is it something too small? For me, that's an issue right now. A lot of things that I think are too small. My wife and I are trying to get a house. That's a joke right now, let me tell you. But 
sometimes I don't even pray for it because I think it's kind of silly. It's like, why? Why? When we come to Jesus, he responds. In Psalm 50, verse 15, it says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you, and you will honor me. God is asking us to do this. In Psalm 86, verse 5, it says, For you, Lord, are kind and ready to forgive, abounding in faithful love to all who call on you. That's a promise for those of us who are in Christ. This word, faithful love, is a Hebrew word. It's, it's hesed, and you actually pronounce it like you've got something in your throat, like chesed. I can't even do it. My Hebrew is not as good as my Aramaic. It means faithful love. Not only that, it's a committal type of love. It's a covenantal type of love. I had a professor once who said, this is the most important word in the Old Testament. This is the word that uh, God uses of David when he promises David that his kingly line, his line of generation to generation to generation, that God will be faithful to his line. That line is the line that Jesus comes from. And so even as they fall away and they go astray, God is committed to love David's line. It's a covenant with David. And for those of us who are in Christ, this hesed is available to us. It's our reality. God has committed to love us when we come to him. So our king is intimate in that he commits to respond to us, if we are in Christ, with loving kindness when we come to him. The last element aspect of his intimacy is that Jesus identifies with his people. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, like a kid walking into church and they're usually kind of sheepish, like four or five years old, maybe kind of sheepish. And usually like me, I'm like, high five, you know, and the kid's like, stranger danger, you know, like I'm a tall adult. Like I, I don't look like them. I'm scary to them. Exclude Finn because Rob's daughter would just probably like run right up to me. She's got all the confidence in the world. But most kids, that's the case. But what I noticed is if I could get down on a knee, if you get down on a knee with a child and, and, and get your hand to their level, maybe ask them about a toy they have in their hand or something like that, you identify with them on their level, they open up immediately, immediately. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here. In verse 33, second half, Jesus, the text says, puts his fingers in the man's ears and spitting, he touches his tongue. That's weird. I mean, that is odd. And, and notice that the people actually asked Jesus to lay hands on the man. That's the normative practice of, of healing. Jesus heals in all sorts of different ways, but usually he's either just speaking or he's laying hands. And even today in the church, we lay hands on each other. That's normative. This is, this is weird. There's a lot of explanations out there, but I, I would, I would want to just put this one before you. We know that the man can't hear and we know he can't speak or he doesn't speak well, likely because he can't hear. And what I would say to you is that I think that Jesus is identifying with this man. He's communicating with the senses that the man is able to use. He's communicating visually and physically. It's what this man's got. He's getting on his level. He's identifying with him where he's at. That's what our king does. He identifies with us, his people, right where we're at. It reminds me similarly of when Lazarus dies and Jesus returns too late. If you know the story, Lazarus dies, Jesus comes back, and he's too late. Lazarus is already dead. And Mary and Martha are distraught. They say, why weren't you there? 
And they're crying and they're weeping. And Jesus, knowing that he's going to raise Lazarus, instead looks at Mary and Martha and identifies with them. He weeps with them. So he identifies with Mary and Martha emotionally. And here he's identifying with this man physically. Even think about yourself as a, as a new Christian. Think about how little you knew, how little you understood, how little you had experienced the, the magnificence of Christ. And yet at that time, he still met you there. We all have those moments early on in our walk where it's like, man, I remember when Christ met me there, but I didn't even know this or that or that or this or that. And yet he met us. He identifies with us right where we're at. Not with our sin. He doesn't identify with our sin because he knew no sin, but he identifies with our experience in this world. Tim Keller says about this passage, he says, Jesus deeply identifies with this man. All of the touching of the ears, the touching of the mouth, it's sign language. He says this, he says, he he comes into this man's cognitive world and uses terms, nonverbal speech that he can understand. He's identifying both physically and emotionally with the man. That's powerful. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 is a, a summary statement of this. It says that we have an empathetic high priest. We have an empathetic king. You see, sympathy, a sympathetic king with authority, sits way off, looks at your problems and says, I feel bad for you. I'm going to try to do something about it from here. How often do we experience that? But yet an empathetic king is not far off. An empathetic king comes close. He says, I see you. I identify with you. I've been there. I've been scorned and mocked and betrayed and beaten. I've experienced temptation like you have. An empathetic king steps into our world and identifies with us. He's intimate. And this, this is the miracle of the incarnation that God would become man, put on human flesh, fully God, fully man, so that he can walk in our world, so that we can share experience with him. And through the incarnation, he's able to be intimate with us. And there's nothing else in the world that can give you that. No other religion, worldview, none of them would say that their God suffered for them. Ours does. So our king is intimate in that he identifies with his people. He sees us, he responds to us, and he identifies with us. And so just some application points for you. Are you in agreement with God's authority? What is it that you have not submitted to God's authority? Maybe you haven't submitted to God's authority. And I don't just mean like a knowledge. I don't mean like, yeah, I know about it. I mean truly agreeing with No, Jesus is king over all. He's king over this. He's king over this. He's king over this sin. He's king over this joy. He's king over this mountaintop. He's king over all of it. Have you submitted your kids to him? Have you submitted your job to him? Have you submitted your loneliness to him? Have you submitted your anxiety to him, your depression to him? What have you not submitted to God's authority? And are you experiencing intimacy with our king? Because it is available to you. What don't you bring to him? If you want to know, hey, I'm a, I'm a steps person. I'm a type A, so I'm like, what are the steps, right? What are the steps to experience intimacy with our king? I would say, first thing, agree that he sees you. Just, just wrap your head around the fact that he sees you and, and bring things to him. And then realize that he identifies with you. So what does all this mean as we close? 
Well, I would put forth that it means that we can walk in hope. One of the coolest things about this passage, in my opinion, is in verse 33, uh, Mark's description of this man says that he had difficulty speaking. And this, this phrase is actually one word in the Greek, and I'm going to try to pronounce it because my Greek is almost as good as my Hebrew and Aramaic. It's maglilos. wasn't bad. You guys don't see it, so you don't know if it's actually bad or not. <laughs> it wasn't bad. It's maglilos. And it's found nowhere else in the New Testament. It's the only time in the New Testament, which was written in Greek, that this word is used. Other places where it talks about a mute man, it doesn't use this word. Mark is using it on purpose. Only one other place in the entire Bible is it used. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 35. And so Mark is leaving a little trail of breadcrumbs here for us. He's saying, here, pull on this string. And this happens a lot in the Bible. Pull on this string a little bit. And if you keep pulling and keep pulling and keep pulling, you're going to get 800 years prior to the prophet Isaiah. And that's where we're at. It says this. Now think about this. Probably eight to 900 years before Mark was writing this, Isaiah said this. He said, then the eyes of the blind will be open and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped and the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute, the Maglilos, will sing for joy. Isaiah prophesying about what the reality of the coming kingdom of God would look like. And Jesus literally living out that prophecy. But not only that, Isaiah 35 sits in, in a section of Isaiah that is about God's judgment. In Isaiah 34, it's all about God's coming judgment. His desolation, destruction, words like wasteland or wrath are used. He even uses this phrase that God will give them over. Language that Paul picks up in Romans 1 about God's wrath. And then in Isaiah chapter 35, where this word is found, you see hope. A hope for the people of God. That God is coming with judgment, but he is coming with hope. It says, you shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. And this is the important part. This is what I think Mark is drawing our attention to. It says, your God will come and he will save. God is coming, and with him comes judgment, right judgment, because he has ultimate authority. But he is coming, and he will save. Mark is drawing our attention to this, that yes, the miracle is the physical restoration, the small miracle, the foretaste of what is to come. But the true miracle is that our God has come, and he has come to save. Physical restoration will come. It might come in this life. You might experience freedom from that addiction. You might experience freedom from that depression. You might experience a physical healing, a cancer diagnosis that leaves. All the examples, fill them in. You could experience that today. And, and our king has authority to do that. But yet, in his wisdom at times, he withholds it. Because the true miracle is that he sees you, he identifies with you, and he saves you. When Jesus withholds physical restoration. It's in his wisdom. In verse 37, the people say this about Jesus. They say that he has done everything well. He has done everything well. And so what I want to put forth to you today as, as a, uh, a because of, a so what, to, to his authority and his intimacy, we can walk in hope. This is our hope. The people of God in Isaiah were looking forward to the king coming. We, as the people in the church age, have seen the king come, but we also look forward to the king coming back. 
And when the king comes back, there are two realities. There is the Isaiah 34 reality, God's judgment, his giving over, and his wrath for those who are not saved by him. Those who do not submit to his authority are in the Isaiah 34 reality, even today. But when he comes back, there is also the Isaiah 35 reality that Mark is pointing to, that our God has come and he has come to save. And so that is on the table today. We merely need to submit to his authority, understand that he is intimate with us, that he is not an authority like the ones on this earth. He is a better authority. He is not far off, but he is close. The Christian faith offers something that nothing else in this world does. A God who has not only authority over our brokenness, but is intimately aware of our brokenness. A God who gives us hope as we wait for his return. That's what's on the table for us today. We have a king who is intimate. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son. Lord, we thank you that though you didn't need us, you sent your son to come get us. That he is intimate with us. That he knows what we go through. Lord, I I pray for people specifically in this room who might have something that they don't know if you are aware of, that they don't know if you truly understand. Lord, I pray for the people in this room who feels like they have something that no one in this world understands. Lord, I pray that you would show them that you understand. I pray that we would submit every area of our lives to your authority. Lord, I pray that you would save. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.